Thank you, brother, for leading us and those that serve with him and those that take up our offering and serve every single Sunday. So grateful that you're here this morning. I hope that you have a Bible that you can open up, preferably if not something that you can turn on and that you would join me in Jude verse 3. Jude verse 3. If you have a kind of rusty on where the book of Jude is at, if you go all the way to the end of your Bible, you'll be at the book of Revelation. And if you go take a left turn, it's the book right before you get to 3 John. So you have 1st, 2nd, 3rd and John. Jude and then Revelation. And so it's just one chapter. They don't even make it a chapter. It's just a a collection of verses here in this letter of Jude. So I hope you'll find your way um, there to Jude. And then we're going to start in verse 3. We're in a very precarious season of the year. It's that flu season. And if you've been watching the news, you've been keeping up with the things going on around us, there have been reports saying that this is a very high uh, level of activity when it comes to the flu season. And even right now, um, there are some faces that you may not see here that you normally see here because the flu season is upon us. And I always find it quite interesting when people come in Especially like this morning, some people are willing to shake hands and some people are like a little bit standoffish. Because you don't know. You don't know who has the virus even in this room. You don't know who is safe, who isn't safe. You don't know if somebody's going to get you sick, if somebody's not going to get you sick. And so sometimes we walk around in our society and in our daily lives, we walk around a little bit guarded, don't we? We walk around a little bit cautious because especially during this time and everything's going around and we think, I don't want to get sick. You may say, well, Spence, what does that have to do with Jude chapter 3? Well, in the same way that we are in a season of life where sometimes there are things that we can't see that will harm us or hurt us, Jude is wanting to remind us, and he reminded us last week, he's going to remind us this week, and he's going to continue to remind us that there are spiritual things all around us that can influence us influence us and that can impact us and this morning Jude is going to point to the the threats that are around us the spiritual threats are around us and you and I may not see them you and I may not realize them you and I may not always recognize them but what Jude is wanting to tell us this morning and what Jude is reminding the readers of the original audience was is that there is a spiritual battle around you And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, what is true about every single one of us is that all of us are in a spiritual battle. We may not always see it. We may not always recognize it. We may not always be able to point to it. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, there are spiritual forces all around us that are battling. And it's a battle between light and darkness. So what we're going to do this morning out of Jude 3 is we're going to continue where we picked up, where we dropped, I'm sorry, where we left off last Sunday, talking about what Jude is wanting us to pursue in, how he is wanting us to proceed. Last week, we started in Jude and the first two verses talking about how we are to live because of who we are. And now we come back to, I told you last week, it's kind of the center point of the entire letter of Jude. In Jude 3, listen to what Jude is exhorting. He's encouraging. He's pleading with the believer. He says, Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith 
that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who, ver- who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I told you last week we were going to come back to this. This is the kind of, kind of this is the common theme. This is the starting point that Jude is in. And so what he reminded us, talked about last week, is that you want to contend, which means to struggle. It means to strive. It means to oppose. He said, oppose those things. Struggle against those things that are against God. Why? He said last week, because of who we are. We have an identity. We have truth. We have hope. We are to be sources of love. But then this morning, as he continues on in verse 5, down through verse Verse 16, he's going to identify the threats. He's going to say, if you're going to contend because of who you are, a believer in Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to know who you're contending against. I don't want it to all be negative. I don't want you to come in and it just be, oh, gloom and doom and agony, oh my. But at the same time, if we're going to be in a spiritual battle, we need to know the battle we're in. And we need to know the opposing force that is against us. So here in Jude, and starting in verse 5 down through verse 16, he exposes. And he's going to expose the people that he mentioned back in verse 4. So notice back up there in verse 4, he gives us the three types of dangers. And then he spends the next verses from 5 to 16 talking about how we know these threats are out there. If you didn't see it, see it again with me. He says in verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. Some of your translations may say ungodly men. Then he goes on. There's a second danger that is out there, and that is those who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And then there's a third one. And deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, as simply as I know how, we're going to walk through, especially verses 5 down through verse 16. And if you'll keep up with me this morning, we're going to look at what he identifies as being the threats that we face. And I hope before we're done this morning that you won't first see the greatest threat of being the flu or COVID or politics or government or indoctrination or even the bad boogeyman hanging outside the door. But you'll understand the greatest threat that we have in this world today is the spiritual battle that is going on around us. So how do we identify the threat? How do we see the threat? Well, follow along with me in those notes in the back of that bulletin as we walk through these verses together. Jude first points out here in verse 4, he talks about the un. Godly. He talks about the ungodly. Now, the way that I've arranged the notes that you have before you, the first bullet point, the sub point you see, gives you a little bit of a, a definition of what I mean or what the Bible is saying when you go back to the original language about the ungodly. Then the second bullet point or the second sub point is just how do we how do we understand that? How do we make sense of it? And then the third one you see there is how do we identify it? Trying to give us some tools, trying to give us some help of how we work through this. So in verse four, he says. Designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. Now, you can describe an ungodly person as someone living without regard to belief or practice. How do we see that then playing out? Well, starting in verse 5, he says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not Believe. He is reminding them that how you identify God ungodly people is through God 
less behavior. So he illustrates this. So he gives us some examples. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about those individuals that he brought out of Egypt in the time of the Exodus, but then later cast judgment upon them. He thinks about to Exodus 32. They're at, the bank, they're at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And Aaron is down there. And next thing you know, they are engaged in idolatry. They have the golden calf. And they are engaged in all of this revelry, all of this idolatry, pagan worship. And God comes down and says, that is wrong. That is a sin. And therefore, I will judge you. And it says there were multiple people that passed away or that died as a result of the judgment of God. So he tells them there in verse 5, do you not understand? that those godless people, even though they may have looked the part, even though they may have talked the part, even though they may have played the part, there are people both inside the church that profess to be believers but are truly not in Christ. So he says just because they act like it and just because they look like it doesn't mean they are. And he says beware. Beware of the ungodly people, those that are living a godless life. So verse 5, he talks about the exodus and talks about the judgment. And then he goes on. And notice he says in verse 6, And the angels did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains under glooming darkness until the judgment of the great day. That's a reference to Revelation chapter 12 when it talks about the great dragon. It talks about the third of the angels that were swept down. The Bible teaches us that whenever Satan rebelled against God, that there were a third of the angels of heaven that rebelled with Satan and God casts them out. You can put maybe a mark down there in your notes. First Peter chapter 3 is another reference about how where it is understood based upon the New Testament writers that when those third of the angels were cast out, there was never a chance, never a chance for salvation. And God has kept them for the final destruction and the final judgment that is to come. So Jude, as he's writing this, he wants to remind them of the actions. He wants to remind them of the consequences. He wants to remind them of what it looks like to live a godless life. So not only does he talk about it in verse 5 and verse 16, but then skip down to verse 14. Skip down to verse 14, and he continues on. He says, it was also about these that Enoch, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his only one to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that are the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, what, who is Enoch? Well, we know that Enoch is in the genealogy. Then you go back to Genesis, he's in, the, he's in the genealogy, he's the seventh one down from Adam. But in that time, in that New Testament time, there were what they considered extra-biblical writings. The Catholic Church has held these as the Apocrypha. It's the extra-biblical writings that have been handed down that were not considered to be inspired or the inerrant word of God, but they were written by contemporaries in that time that some people would listen to or some people would look to. Let me put it in a way that we can maybe understand. If you have a famous author or a famous preacher today, let's say Charles Stanley writes something, and you're like, oh, that's good, and you ref- reference Charles Stanley. That doesn't mean that Charles Stanley is Bible. It just meant that someone talking about the things of God is somebody that you want to listen to. Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll, 
Adrian Rogers. There's some of these titans of the faith that have lived, Billy Graham. Some of these people that you may reference, not in a way of saying it is inerrant, it is inspired, it is the Word of God, but using them as a point of reference to explain your point. Well, that is what Jude is doing. He's referencing back to the book known as the first Enoch. In chapter 1, in verse 9, Enoch is talking about the judgment of God. He's talking about the judgment that God brings upon godless people. And do not be deceived, church. The ungodly will give an account to God. And the ungodly are not just in the strip clubs. The ungodly are not just on the street corners. The ungodly are not just those that are far away from God. The ungodly look just like you and I. And they may talk just like you and I. And the ungodly are those that are living a life that many people might consider to be good lives, moral lives, but they're godless lives. And he says, beware, beware of the ungodly. Why? Well, look at verse 16. He says, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. He said, beware of them, because those individuals that are ungodly will not only show you their ungodliness by their words and their actions, but they will lead you into ungodliness if you pursue and follow after them. If you would, put down there, jot down in your margin, jot down there in your notes, Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gives us a way of being able to identify and discern those that would be considered ungodly. I I put down in your notes, we discern the ungodly by their actions and their words. And in Matthew chapter 7, you're at the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is talking about a tree and its fruit. He says in verse 17, so every tree, every healthy tree bears good fruit, and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So it's just a simple matter of looking at a person's life, listening to the word, watching their actions. And you get an idea of wondering, are they godless or do they have God in their lives? And he says, beware. Beware of the ungodly. But Then he also gives us a second warning. Beware of the perverted. Now the perverted is a word that has been used a lot in a sense of immorality. And perverted is a word that is used a lot in the sense of something that is a, a predatory by nature. But a, somebody that is a perverted person is just somebody that has distorted. Somebody that is twisted in their thinking. And I put there in your notes, to distort or to twist from what is good or Moral, maybe in a little bit of a soft-hearted thing, somebody that is perverted may be somebody that thinks OU is better than OSU. They're twisted in their mind. They're distorted in their mind. They think that this is up and this is down, and they're backwards in their thinking. Amen, Charles? So it's one of those people that you might think of. And somebody like Charles may say, well, yeah, Spence thinks I'm distorted because he's distorted. And this can go back and forth and back and forth. But this idea of being perverted is not just something we think about in a predatory from an adult to a child. It is somebody that has distorted and twisted what is true. And what is reality? And we're living in a day and age since there's a lot of people trying to twist and distort what is reality. 
to accommodate and to satisfy their own personal desires. We have to be careful. That's why Jude says back up there in verse 4, For certain people have crept in and noticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. What is he talking about? Well, he gives us a lot of examples when it comes to this. If you go back down there in the text and you pick back up in verse 7, he gives us the first example. He talks about perverting um, this uh, grace of God, which means the mercy of God, which means the patience of God, which means the understanding of God, the timing of God. Some people think, well, God hasn't done anything about it, so therefore God must not be against it. And remind you back to places like Genesis chapter 19 where you come into the story of God at Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he's referencing here in Jude and verse 7. He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. He says, not only do the perverted distort and twist what is good and what is moral, but they manipulate the truth. You see, the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, they thought they were in the right. They probably said things like, well, I was born this way. They probably said things like, well, I can't help it. They probably said things like, well, everybody else is doing it. They probably said things like, well, we decided that this is okay now. They probably said things like, well, we decide that it's okay because we feel this way and you can't challenge my emotions or my feelings. They distorted what is true. They distorted what is right. And they manipulated what God's truth says. So he says there in Jude Jude and verse 7, think about Sodom and Gomorrah. This is an example of how perversion works. But then you go on down there to verse 11 and he picks this idea of the perverted back up by saying, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and and perished in Korah's rebellion. Oh, there's three examples right there he gives us. What is he talking about? Well, not only is he talking about the immorality and the sexual perversion that we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, but then he goes to Genesis 4 and talks about the sin of Cain. Remember the story? You go back in Genesis 4. God had Adam, Eve, Adam, Eve had two boys, Cain and Abel. But Cain and Abel both, both brought their offerings to God. Abel brought his, uh, in the words of W. Martin, his first and his best. Cain brought his convenience. And as Abel brought his first and his best to the Lord. God had a regard for that. Cain brought what was convenient, and God said, I have no regard for that. Cain got mad, killed his brother Abel. Why? Because he thought that he could determine to God what was sufficient and what God should take. He had a perversion to thinking that he decides what an offering is and that he decides what God will accept. But then he also gives us another example right there in verse 11. He talks about Balaam's heir. Well, that takes us to Numbers chapter 22. What was Balaam's heir? If you remember back, the people of Israel headed to the promised land. The king in the opposing country hires Balaam to to, uh, pronounce a curse upon the Israelites. Balaam comes. He doesn't curse them. He blesses them. The king's unhappy, but Balaam says, I still want to be paid. So secretly he goes out and he tells the king, you know what? I can't curse them, but I can tell you how to curse. Distract them. You intermarry with them. You introduce pagan worship with them. You fraternize with them. You can allure them away by your desires and by your festivals and by your play. And the next thing you know, it's not a matter of you outright going and defeating them. If you can just take their focus off of where it needs to be, you can overpower them. 
And that was Balaam's error. Balaam's error was that he went and he told the people. And yet when they come into the promised land, you can find elsewhere in Scripture where Balaam was killed because of his perversion in the things of God. And then finally in verse 11, it talks about Korah's rebellion. What was Korah's rebellion? Well, you can find that in Numbers chapter 16. And in Numbers chapter 16, Moses had said, we're going this direction. Korah was one of the other religious leaders that stood up and said, no, Moses, you're not in charge. If we had time, we could go back. And what happens is, is that Moses says, okay, those with Korah, you get over there. Those with me, you come over here. And this division showed up. And what Moses did, and I think it is so cool, can you imagine having the kind of confidence? No, Moses looks out amongst all the people of Israel and says, this is how you will know who God is for, who is on God's side, and who is acting out of obedience to God. If whoever is in the wrong, if the land opens up and swallows them all, that's how you'll know who's in the wrong. And as soon as he said it, the ground opened up. Korah and 250 people with him, whoosh, like some scene off of an Indiana Jones movie. It just swallowed them right up. And then as soon as Korah and his family were swallowed up, then a plague broke out. And it says in Numbers chapter 16 and verse 49, now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the affair of Korah. It's this idea that God says, do you understand? Do you understand the danger of perversion? Do you understand the danger of just manipulating God's word one little bit? There's other denominations in this world around us. Other mainline is the terminology. Mainline denominations that have decided to redefine the office of the pastor. And it's one twist. It's one turn. And it's perversion of God's word. There are other denominations and there's religions out there. There's other churches out there today that say that they're going to redefine what it means to be male and female. What it means to be married. They're going to try to redefine what God's word says. They're going to redefine what is sin. And it's a perversion of God's word. And it may be one degree. It may be ten degrees. It may be five degrees. But what they're doing is they're manipulating God's Word. So he goes on there in the text in, in Jude and verse 12. He said, these are hidden reefs. I think the New Living talks about them being warts. If you ever have a wart before, if you have any idea what a wart is, it's just a growth. It's not good for anything, not helpful for anything, unsightly, undesirable, embarrassing. And one of the translations I looked at called these people Warts. But he says, and here in the translation I'm at, they are hidden reefs at your love feast. And they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds, swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. You say, Spence, what is he saying? He is saying, these are the ways that you identify those that are the perverted. They talk a lot, but there's no substance to what they're saying. They say a lot of things, but there's no truth in what they are saying. They do a lot of actions. They do a lot of activities, but there is nothing God honoring what they do. If you were in Sunday school class this morning, I know some of you with Jonathan upstairs, I'm sure you're having a great time. But if you weren't downstairs this morning with most Sunday school class, you missed a, a great blessing. 
And one of the things that Mo talked about this morning was when it comes to the contemporary singing of our day, that one of the big shifts between what was a version of hymnody versus the, the, the version of singing today is the pronouns, I think is what Mo was talking about, that you can see this shift where we start singing about God and we start singing to God and we start singing about ourselves. And you will see this perversion take place in the people around you when they start talking more about them and start talking less about God. So how do we discern? How do we know who they are? Well, we compare what they're saying. We compare what they're doing. We compare how they're living to God's Word. Which is why it is so important for you and I to know God's Word. Because we compare everything around us to God's Word. I heard a man say one time that following the path of least resistance is what makes men and rivers crooked. And sometimes, I don't know about you ladies, but sometimes it's just easier to get along. Sometimes it's just easier to go with the flow. And I'm going to tell you, even in my own family, there's times where it's like, well, Spence, you don't have to be a fuddy-duddy. I'm not being a fuddy-duddy. I just know what God's Word says. And God's Word says don't do it. And if you're not supposed to do it, then don't do it. This is a simple game of Simon Says. And instead of saying Simon Says, we're saying Jesus Says. Jesus says, don't do it, you don't do it. And if you think you're going to do it and nothing's going to happen, then you are A, ungodly, and B, you might be perverted. And Jude says, be careful, be on guard. Know these are threats around you where the Satan and the enemy and darkness tries to get you and I to twist and to dance with definitions. And he says, remember. Remember not just Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the example of Cain. Remember the example of Balaam. Remember what happened to Korah. Remember to people what happened to people when they tried to manipulate God's word. And you don't even have to leave. You do not have to leave the city limits of Wellston to find other organizations that are twisting God's word. And we must be on guard. And even in this room, there may be individuals that you may mean the best in your heart. And you may have the sweetest of intentions. But when we spend more time listening to ungodly people give us unbiblical advice, we can find ourselves being influenced by manipulative, twisting people. So he says, be on guard. Be on guard against the ungodly. Be on guard against the perverted. But then, back up at verse 4, and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So not only does he talk about the ungodly, he talks about the perverted, but now he's going to talk about the denier. The denier. Now what is a denier? What is, are we going to talk about the atheist? Oh. It's much more numerous than that. A denier is somebody that denounces or refuses to acknowledge God. That's the idea that is implied here in the text. They deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, some of them have been so brazen as to say, I'm an atheist. I'm going to say, there is no such thing as God. Well, you know what? That 
argument really falls apart because in order for me to tell you that there is not a God means that I have to have all knowledge and I have to have searched out every square inch of the universe and I had to have looked under every rock and behind every asteroid and I had to have searched everything out to know there isn't a God. And I would have to have all knowledge to be able to say that I've examined all truth and I've examined all avenues and I've examined all kinds of the philosophies and the ideas out there. And I would have to have all power to be able to go to and fro and high and low and everywhere to search out that there is not a God. And by that definition of having the omniscience and the omnipotence and the omnipresence to be able to search all all of those things out, I would therefore be a God. You see, for somebody to say there is no such thing as God makes them in a position of being God to be able to say what is and what isn't. There is no such thing as an atheist. You may say, well, I, Spence, I can point you to somebody on television that claims to be an atheist. Everybody may claim to be an atheist, but the Bible tells us that everybody will bow the knee to God. Oh, you may be an atheist in this season of life. You may be an atheist through this period of your existence. But the Bible tells us that there is coming a day that every single person will know that there is a God. So Jude in verse 4 says they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Where did he get that from? How is he explaining that? We'll go down there to verse 8. He said, yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So he gives us his explanation of how this thing is played out. They rely on their own thoughts. They rely on their own emotions. They rely on their own thinking. They defile the flesh. They say, I am in charge of my own body. Reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now let's talk about this idea of what it means to blaspheme. There's been questions over the ages of what is the unpardonable sin. Is it suicide? Some churches have said, well, it's suicide. Now while suicide is the final act of homicide, the Bible does not teach that suicide is the only, is the unpardonable sin. So what is the unpardonable sin? It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Why is it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Because when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you say, I do not believe, I refuse to accept, and I deny the authority of God in my life. So why do people go to hell? They go to hell because of their guilt of their sin, because of the judgment of God over their sin. And they never chose to believe in God. They never chose to turn to God. They never chose to repent and confess their sins to God. And so that is why people go to hell. It's not because not because they murdered somebody or because of the fact that they killed themselves or because of some singular sin, they went to hell because they never believed in God's salvation. So what does he say to me in a blasphemer? Be a blasphemer is somebody that rejects God's authority. To deny God's authority, it's somebody that speaks against God. So not only they denounce and refuse to acknowledge God, but they assume God's authority. That's what it says in verse 8. They are relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. And so then Jude comes in and gives us an example. Now it gets a little weird. Some people like to focus on this. But verse 9, it says, But when the archangel, archangel Michael, contending 
with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, it may be easy for you and I to just sit down and just kind of say, now, what is going on here, Spence? Spence, can you explain to us? You mean so Moses had died? Yes, that's Deuteronomy 34. So what happened to his body? Well, it tells us in Deuteronomy 34 that God buried Moses. So the people didn't bury Moses. No, God buried Moses. But then it says right here the archangel, Michael, and Satan, they're contending for the body of Moses. So what is going on there? I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I do know. That when Michael is sitting there arguing with Satan, instead of Michael saying, well, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, Satan. I'm going to claim authority. I am going to say based upon who I am, I am Michael the archangel. Michael didn't even presume, didn't even presume to take authority that isn't his. So what does it say there in verse 9? What does it say that he did? He looked at Satan and he says, God rebuke you. How many times do you and I find ourselves in our lives thinking that we have more authority than we have? How many times do you and I start to think, well, I've got the authority to say this and I have the authority to say that? In, in, in Jaylene and I's home, we have these sweet, beautiful, sinful children. And these sweet, beautiful, sinful children will get in the position and they'll start to think, I get to rule the roost. I get to tell you what to do. And sometimes Jaylene and I will leave for the evening. We left Friday night. We went and watched a, a theatrical play in Stillwater. And when we leave, it's who's in charge? Who is in charge? And so you will say, well, this boy is in charge. And that boy puts that chest out like, yep, you other ones, you better get in line because I'm in charge. Why are y'all looking up there at Eli? But they'll do that. Whether it's Eli, whether it's Wyatt, whether it's Micah, whoever it is that we leave in charge, they get that whole chest out and they're like, I'm in charge. Well, they might be in charge in their own little world. But we all know that ultimately what it, what it comes down to is mom and dad are still in charge. And what they are hopefully learning as they're continuing to grow is that ultimately it's not even mom and dad being in charge because beyond mom and dad, there's also a God that is in charge. And between us and God, there is the word of God. And we are responsible for that. And sometimes you will find people in this world that they will denounce or they will refuse to acknowledge God because they will think that they have their own authority. So Jude comes in and he says, be careful. Be aware of those people that come in and deny the authority of God because they think they have their own authority. So how do we discern it? We discern it by their authority. You listen to what they say. When they start to think, well, I'm in charge. I decide what is right for me. I decide what is good for me. I will decide what I'm going to do. I will decide what is best. I will decide which way to go. I will decide what is right. I will decide what is true. They are going back to their own authority and they're denying the authority of God. So how do we see that practically, Spence? What determines your weekly schedule? What sets your weekly schedule? Is it a sports schedule? Is it a work schedule? Is it a hobby? I used to work with some guys in the oil field that their whole days off with the drilling rig was determined by the feeding schedule. It's a moon cycle. You'll find in some of these outdoor magazines will have the feeding schedule, have your major and your minor periods. 
So these guys, for their full seven days off, their entire life was determined around the feeding schedule. When the fish were supposed to be biting, when the deer were supposed to be active, when this certain outdoor activity was supposed to be at its greatest or not. And their entire seven days off was set upon the feeding schedule. So what sets your schedule? You see, we ask ourselves the question, well, Spence, I would not deny God. And yet, how many times in our daily lives, our schedules are not set by God? I realize that you need to work. I realize that you have bills. I realize that you have responsibilities. I'm not saying that you can just go home and say, well, I'm not going to do anything. But I am asking you what takes priority. Because we have too many people in this world today that their weekly schedule is set more by their debt than their relationship with God. There are more people in this world today that their schedule and their priorities are set by their children and not their commitment to the Lord. There are more people in this world today that their priorities are set by the opinions of other people than the Word of God. And I'm not saying this morning that every single one of us are lost and going to hell, but brothers and sisters, we need to be aware that by what we do, by what we say, and by what we give value to says who has authority in our lives. It dictates who is important, and it dictates what we yield to. So Jude says, be careful. Be careful because in the church you have the ungodly. Be careful because in the church you have the perverted. Be careful in the church you have the deniers. And Jude is not just talking about the people outside these walls. Notice he's talking about the people also inside these walls. He tells you back up in verse 3, I found it necessary to write to you appealing to contend for the faith. To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude is wanting to frame this and saying the battle is not just outside, but the battle is also inside when you have a whole number of people that are coming together and they may look the part, talk the part, act the part but inside their hearts they are living godless lives, they are perverting truth and they are denying the authority of God with their lives. So how do we contend based upon everything that Jude has given us just in this passage? How do we contend? Well three things and we're done. Number one pursue faith more than faults. Pursue faith more than faults. See, it's easy for you and I. Well, no, no, no. It's not easy for, I shouldn't say you. It's easy for me. It's easy for me to be more aware of people's faults. It's easy for me to pass judgment. It's easy for me to look down and say, well, they're wrong in this. and They just need to fix this. It's easy for me to look down my nose. And instead of encouraging people in their walk with the Lord. I don't know if you know the name John Wooden, legendary basketball coach, a couple generations gone by. And I was watching an interview with him just this last week, and he had multiple years at the University of Southern, or UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, I think is what it is, but UCLA. There were numerous seasons where his basketball team went undefeated. Never lost a single basketball game all season. Won the national championship. And he said one of the rules that he had on his basketball team was that players never criticize one another. 
Yeah, that doesn't mean that they're always flawless. It doesn't mean that they are without faults. It doesn't mean that they never make a mistake. But he said, instead of us focusing on the negative, let's focus on the positive. And brothers and sisters, sometimes, sometimes we need to be mindful that what Jude is telling us to do is not to go around and tell everybody how bad of a person they are and how far they fall short. It's for us to go around and contend for the faith, to pursue faith more than faults, to say, yes, we are struggling. Yes, we have our challenges. Yes, we have our setbacks. But oh, don't you you know the glory that comes when we are pursuing the face of God. To encourage one another. To support one another. And to be one another's cheerleader in this pursuit of God. To pursue faith more than faults. The church is well known for pointing fingers. And being hypocrites. And telling everybody why they're so wrong. But Jude says, let us contend for the faith. Not just pursue faith more than faults. But number two, understand the nature of the battle. Understand the nature of the battle. What is Jude saying? He's saying that it's contending for the faith. It's not a battle between OU and OSU. It's not a battle between Republicans and Democrats. It's not a battle between the Pepsi and the Coke drinkers. It's not a battle between the Chevy and the Ford drivers. This isn't a battle that we're looking on the physical, temporal state. This is a spiritual battle. John chapter 3 and, and verse 19 and, and following talks about this light and darkness. You and I are in a battle. We are in a battle of these cosmic forces. You have God and you have Satan and they are battling. Satan is trying to uh, take glory and steal glory away from God and God is trying to show his glory to all of his creation. And so you have this battle that is taking place. So what we are in is not a battle for people to like me or a battle on the physical level or the personal level. This is a spiritual thing. And yes, sometimes we take things so personally. Well, so-and-so didn't talk to me. So-and-so said this. I wonder what they meant about that. Well, so-and-so didn't shake my hand. Well, so-and-so wasn't very kind to me. You know, it could be that there are spiritual battles going on around us intending to try to keep you and I at distance from one another. You wonder why there's some mornings that like your worst morning of the week can sometimes be Sunday morning. It's not coincidental. You want to know why we have so many churches? Well, we have 13 churches just right here in the town of Wilson. Why? Because Christian people can't get along. Is that a biblical principle? No, that is a battle principle. You divide, you isolate. You know, people will get upset at the restaurant and they'll still continue to eat. People will get upset at the church and they never will return. And brothers and sisters, sometimes we need to understand that there's a battle that is going on. And the nature of the battle is spiritual. And the spiritual, battle, the spiritual battle is trying to get you and I to divide. Trying to get you and I to isolate. Trying to get you and I to select ourselves out so that we are spiritually starved. And so he says contend. Not just contend with the lost. Not just contend with the saved. Contend with yourself. I think every single one of us in this room this morning has, is, or will face times of battles in here. And the question is, what are we going to do? Are we going to pervert what is true? Are we going to deny God's authority? Are we going to listen to godless Things around us. 
Or are we going to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? My prayer for us this morning is that we see the difference between devotions and distractions. There are some things in this world around us that are meant to be things that draw us closer to God. They're meant to be things that take us further away from God. And sometimes the distractions look good. They look tempting. They look like that is a positive thing. And they might be good. And sometimes, sometimes the good things are given to keep us from the best things. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, we have to put on our discerning minds and we have to put in our discerning hearts to identify the difference between a devotion and a distraction. Because not everything in front of us leads us closer to God. That's my question for us this morning. What are you contending for? Are you contending for money? Are you contending for status? Are you contending for popularity? Are you contending for pleasure? Are you contending for satisfaction? Are you contending for yourself? Or are you contending for the things of God? Would you bow your heads with me?